Thanks, Matt. Hi, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to be at Sterling. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, Tara and my husband and our five kids, we hail from Cape Town. And my husband uh, was here sharing last Sunday night. And it is my honor to be with you tonight. And it is my sheer delight to leave my husband <laughs> with all five of our kids. Um, Matt very sweetly said, Julie, you don't have to do all three. You just have to do, you, you know, if you, don't, if you can't, if can't manage three services, that's fine. And I said, what time does the evening service? And he said, six. You know, you'll be home by eight. And I thought, that's perfect. That's great. I will absolutely miss um, the craziness that happens in our house um, in your house, Dave, at the moment. And, um, uh, so thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And if you don't call Sterling home, perhaps you're visiting, perhaps you're invited, perhaps you're just exploring uh, the claims of Christ and looking into a church community, welcome. What I love about Sterling and about this community is you are welcome to belong before you believe. And so consider yourself more than welcome here tonight. Um, as I've said, uh, Taryn and I have five children, Eli, Finn, Ivy, and then we had a surprise bonus two-for-one special twins, um, Sam and Charlie, which totally threw us over the edge of normal and um, coping, but they have been a delight, and they have so enjoyed this last week, uh, the three older kids in your holiday camp, uh, in your holiday club. We thought we'd send them the... The, the three older guys, to the Monday and see how it went. You know, they don't know anyone, they knew, and they have begged us every day since to come back, and it was a wonderful threat to hang over them in the afternoon. If they were not really acting nicely, we'd say, well, then there's no holiday club tomorrow, and they all came to the party. It was a bit strange to find them using deodorant cans to roll um, flat bread on the floor, trying to make something called sushi scrolls, which I still haven't fully worked out. And Ivy's highlight, she's six on her first day, was she jumped in the car and she said, Mom, they gave us juice with no water in it. <laughs> <laughs> so East London has gone to the top of her culinary, you know, like locations in the world, thanks to the sushi scrolls and the juice with no water. So thank you, Holiday Club people. But really, um, I think I just do want to just say from someone that is not part of this community and isn't even part of East London, from a distance, you are making such an impact in the city and in the world through serving and loving the least and the little ones. It really makes an eternal difference. You know, kids, and I can see it with my own kids, they've been to lots of church things, but um, it's one thing telling kids something, but it's another thing uh, that they walk away knowing that they were loved. And my kids walked away knowing that they were loved, not just by Jesus, but by the people that served them and loved them so well this week. So thank you for the deposit in my family and in hundreds of other families across the city. Thank you, thank you. Now, uh, as Matt has said, I have the privilege of kicking off your three-week series called How About Some Good News for a Change?, and today, in particular, we're going to be looking at a good purpose. How, if at all, can we hope for something good to come out of so much bad news and bad situations in the world? Now, this idea of good news is something we're all familiar with, and yet good news as a whole is sadly rarer and rarer today. I don't know if it's because of the advent of social media and online news, 
But um, we just swim in a sea of bad news these days, don't we? I think about not just East London and South Africa, but globally, there's rampant bad news. There's political disunity that's tearing countries apart everywhere. There's a global economic recession. There's widespread news of corporate and state corruption. There's mounting evidence that we are destroying our planet, ecologically speaking. And then um, any violent crime or terrible natural disaster or horrific terrorist attack is disseminated to all of us within minutes, so that no matter how far away it might have occurred, it's in our hearts, it's in our homes, it's on our minds within minutes. And I have felt for quite a while like we're living in an age of a macro depression. (laughs) Of course, we can still be happy in our own lives and in our own circumstances, we can find joy, but there's kind of like a global gloom that's settled over us in the past few years a kind of global pessimism, cynicism, and a disillusionment with how things are. And just looking into this, uh, researching for this talk, I stumbled across this thing that I didn't know before. Did you know that there is such a thing as a negativity bias and that we all have it as humans? Studies have shown that we all gravitate toward bad news far more than good news. And also that bad news leaves a far greater impression on us. So if you can imagine being in a media house or in a news uh, industry, which news are you going to share? The one that has the greatest impact. And so it's kind of a, um, a thing that is a self-perpetuating, self-perpetuating cycle. People feed off bad news, and so more bad news is... Uh, highlighted rather than the good news. A scientific journal that I scanned over says this. Hundreds of scientific studies from around the world confirm our negativity bias, while a good day has no lasting effect on the following day. A bad day carries over. We process negative data faster and more thoroughly than positive data, and it affects us longer. Speaking about these effects of bad news, another article I read cited the bad health effects that bad news have on us. We are genetically conditioned to react to bad news as if we were exposed to a trauma or real stress in our lives, even if we're reading about something that doesn't have an actual effect on our lives. Even if the news doesn't directly impact on us, our brains send adrenaline and cortisol. I know there's a doctor in the front row. (laughs) Just nod, Dave. (laughs) Um, And over time, that has a negative effect on us because uh, obviously that's not meant to be something that's a daily occurrence. So what's the good news in all of this, I hear you asking? Well, it's that in a world full to the brim with bad news, there is really, really good news too. Such good news that it has the potential to not just compete with the bad news, but to usurp it, to subvert it, and actually infuse even the worst news with a good, eternal outcome. Wow. I know that might sound too good to be true, and so I'm going to spend the rest of my time up here trying to convince you that this is true, that this is not 
fake news. This is the realist news. This is what's really real. And we're going to be looking at some scripture to find out. Um, but before we dive into a particular story in the Bible, I just want to say a general thing about God's word and about the scriptures. And that's that God's word encapsulated in the Bible is very, very good news. And yet, I think we tend to, with so much resources and information at our hands in our smartphones, we tend to spend far more time poring over other news than we do over this good news. And when we do that, we are bound to feel rattled and shaken because we're just surrounded by the temporary, by what's currently going on, and not by the rock of ages. And if, as scientific journals attest, news, information has an actual effect on our psyche and on our well-being, how much more could God's eternal words, his living words, have an effect on us? So if you are here and you're someone like me who spends a lot of time reading news and, and articles and, and digesting information, might I just urge you to spend as much time or more time in God's word. It is a rock in this crazy age that we live in. But moving on to today's text, for the majority of this message, we're going to be focusing on one man in particular, Joseph. We meet him and hear all about him towards the end of Genesis. And we'll be looking at him today because if there was one person in the Old Testament who was handed a raw deal over and over and over again, it was this guy, Joseph. We don't have time to read through the account of his life, so I'm just going to briefly outline it here. Things started off really well for Joseph. He was the favorite son of Jacob, and so he was given a special treatment. His dad brought him this beautiful, multicolored robe, and he wore it with pride. And he had this special gift from a young age of dreams and interpretations of those dreams. Uh, he even told his brothers about this crazy dream he had of them all bowing down to him. <laughs> that didn't go down so well <laughs> with his older brothers. And they got jealous. And they plotted to kill him. Wow. I think sometimes my kids are crazy, but they've never plotted anything like that on each other, thankfully. Although, let's see how tonight goes. Um, they plot to kill him. Not only that, they decide at the last minute, let's rather sell him into slavery to some passing Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. So they sell their own brother into slavery. Can you imagine being Joseph? You know, sometimes we so detached from these stories, but this was a real human boy, a little brother that got sold into slavery. <laughs> Can you imagine the betrayal and the heartache and the panic of being separated from your family? This was a huge blow to Joseph's life. He's then bought by a high-profile captain of the guard in Egypt, and he works hard and he works honorably for this man. But the captain's wife tries to have her way with him. And because he is an honorable, honest man, he flees her, but not without losing his coat and his reputation and honor thanks to this wife's fury at being spurned. He's wrongly accused of trying to rape her, and so he doesn't just lose his job. He is thrown into a dungeon prison. The second major unjust blow in this man's life. 
But even here in prison, Joseph is a blessing, and he soon is running things and helping the prison guards and interpreting dreams. And he rightly predicts that the cupbearer will be freed soon, and he begs this man to remember him. But the cupbearer gets free, and what does he do? He forgets all about Joseph for two whole years. This is, in my mind, the third major blow in, Jesus, in Joseph's life. Can you imagine for another two years being in a, locked in a dungeon prison unjustly, and, and you know that this guy's been free and he's promised to remember you and you sit every day. Can you imagine how long two years goes by? And I'm sure Joseph must have been wondering, God, what good purpose could you possibly have in all of this? What good could come out of this painful, bad situation? But then Pharaoh has a dream that none of his wise men can interpret. And that's when the cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph. And this part of the story always gets me. It says in Genesis 41 verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. If I was Joseph reading this narration of my life, I would want to slap the narrator at this point of the story quickly. There's nothing quick about Joseph's deliverance. And yet sometimes in all of our lives, the trials and the long painful times can feel so long. And yet deliverance can come swiftly. Joseph went from being in prison to the palace in just one day. And the story goes on. He becomes basically Egypt's prime minister, and he saves multitudes from a devastating famine thanks to his trust in God's voice and his humble wisdom. The story ends with his brothers bowing down to him, just as his dreams had predicted all those decades before, not knowing who he really is. And then when he reveals who he is to them, they are stricken with fear. Here is this powerful man that they did so much wrong to. Surely he's going to be so vindictive. And Joseph says these famous words in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Wow. What an incredible account of someone that at the end of so many blows and so much unjust treatment, he can face the people that started it all, the people that sold him into slavery, his own brothers, and he can say, fear not, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. I think if Joseph ever penned an autobiography, that should be the title of his book, Intended for Good. He was handed so many raw deals, so much bad came his way, and yet what others had meant for evil, God intended for good. That's Joseph's story at least. But I wonder about us in the room here today, if we can say the same about the painful parts in our lives. Because it's one thing standing back and seeing Joseph's life kind of on this timeline where we can see it all, we can see the arc and we can see how it ends. And there's another thing being stuck on a timeline, being in your life, when you don't know how it's ending, and you're feeling like you're in a painful part. I recently went to an amazing women's conference in Cape Town, and there were thousands of women there, and it 
it was hugely encouraging and inspiring. Uh, there were women from all different ages and walks of life. And this one speaker spoke, and at the end of her talk, she said, I'd like everyone to stand who feels heartbroken by life at the moment. Not, not in the past, but right now you're feeling heartbroken. And I couldn't believe it. About 95% of the women in that room stood up. Wow. Just was such a reminder to me that though we might all look happy and great on the outside, most of us right now in this room are facing some hard battles. Just like Joseph, I bet there are people in this room who feel like they've been thrown into a pit. That's what his brothers did with him first. Who feel like they once had dreams, God-given dreams, but they lie shattered. Perhaps there are people here today who, like Joseph, have been unfairly treated, robbed of what was rightly yours, sold out, wrongly accused, slandered. Perhaps you're here today and you feel forgotten in a dungeon of sorts, chained by circumstances or other people's wrongdoing or maybe just by heartache. And like Joseph, perhaps you've whispered to some people, don't forget me. And yet you feel pretty forgotten right now. Can good really come out of your pain? Could God really be saying to you tonight, what others intended for evil, I have intended for good? The answer, I believe, is unequivocally yes. <laughs> and I believe this not just because the Bible tells me, but because I have experienced it in my own life. From the deepest pain in my life, I've seen God bring beautiful jewels, beautiful parts of his Christ-like character forged in me that could never have been forged through good times, and wonderful aspects of um, ministry to other people through the broken parts of my life. And so for the remainder of my message, I'd like to highlight three points that hopefully help us to unpack this answer, that God does have a good purpose, even in the bad situations in our life. And the first point I'd like to make is this. Never confuse God's character with your life circumstances. We must not confuse God's character with what we are going through in our lives, friends. It's a mistake we all so easily can make. If life is going well, we tend to think, God, you are good, and you are large and in charge. You know what you're doing, and you are pleased with me. And when life is not going so well, we can think, God, have you taken your eye off the ball? Are you even there? Do you even care? Or perhaps, God, why are you angry with me? What have I done wrong? Yet Matthew 5 and Ecclesiastes 9 tell us that God sends rain and sun on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Isn't that beautiful? Theologians call that common grace, and it's not to be confused with God's favor or his condoning of life choices. And conversely, when we follow God with all our hearts, this does not guarantee that our lives are going to go smoothly and just get better and better and better. Look at Joseph's life. Look at Jesus's life. Look at Paul's life. Look at the disciples' lives. How well or how badly our lives are going is no reflection on who God is and how he feels about us. When we begin to grasp this, it really is good news 
Because it's so freeing and it's so humbling to realize that God is not our puppet on a string. We can't paint by numbers, obey him, and then demand that he should do X, Y, Z for us. God is not our cosmic butler. And yet so many of us come to God like this. We come to God for what we can get out of him. We marry God for his money. We come to God for perhaps a better relationship or a better reputation or a cleaner conscience or perhaps just for a life that works. And certainly, living by God's ways and his wisdom will bring about a life that works and one where wisdom flows through it. But when we come primarily to God for those things, it's like the kid who opens up the first box under the Christmas tree and finds its batteries and runs around clanging the batteries together, going, yay, I got batteries, and doesn't realize that there's a much bigger present under the tree, a remote control car, that those batteries are just an accessory to, just a tool for. And it's the same with us. When we come to God for what we can get out of him, we miss the main thing, which is God himself. And this is the beauty of hard times, friends, because when the gifts stop flowing, will you still love the giver? Hard times have a beautiful way of killing this heresy in our lives, this weird idea that God owes us a good life, that our circumstances somehow reflect the character of God. It's taken me a long time to come to terms with this fact that God is not as interested as I am in a life that goes smoothly and just gets better and better. I've always thought that because God is good, life should not be so tough. Because God is good, surely my life should not be hard. If I were just to have more faith or a longer quiet time or just apply some principle I haven't stumbled across yet, surely my life is going to get easier. But if we believe that, the moment life does get tough, you have no reserves to deal with it. You beat yourself up or you blame others. And when life is going well, you think to yourself, I finally got it. I've stumbled across the right principles. And you can become one smug, self-righteous person. Look at Joseph. When the chips are down, when the money's run out, when his family has forsaken him, he still loves and trusts God. And only like Joseph, we can do the same. When we don't confuse God's character with our life circumstances. The second major point I'd like to make is this. God can and he does use hardships for his higher purposes. God can use hardships for higher purposes. Oh, this is great news that all the suffering and the pain in your life is not for nothing. For God's people, at least, we have this incredible promise in Romans 8 verse 28 that God will work everything out for the good of those that love him. That God will work. Not might, not potentially could, not should, will work. Everything, not some of the things, not only the great things, everything out for the good of those that love him. And it's echoed in Joseph's words to his brothers that I read earlier. As for you, what you intended for evil against me, God intended for good. And it's echoed in each of our lives, if we look close enough. I remember 
reading a book a long time ago, and in it, the author tells a story about his own life. He considered himself a really good chess player. He was kind of the chess champion of his school and his district. And as an adult, by some um, serendipitous events, he got to play a chess world champion. And he was so excited about this. And he talks about playing this amazing chess genius. And he so beautifully describes how any move he made, however clever, however destructive, this chess champion would just absorb into his master plan and checkmate him anyway. And I love this picture because sometimes we can think, how can God be sovereign and yet there's all this bad stuff? Is God doing the bad stuff? And I love this picture because it shows God is the ultimate life chess champion. And he sits there and he gives us free will and he gives everyone free will. And no matter what bad moves and wrong turns we might make or might be made against us, he sits there and he can absorb them into his ultimate game plan and use them for our good and for his glory because those things go together hand in hand. Look at Joseph's own life. God used the painful parts of his journey and his story to chip away at any arrogance and independence. He learned how to resist temptation through running from Potiphar's wife. How do we grow these muscles, these fruits of the spirit, spirit and these um, characters that are more like Christ, unless we are tested and unless they come forged through fire and trial? Fruits of the Spirit, I was reminded of them this week, my kids came home from this holiday club on Friday with these little wheel charts of the fruits of the spirit. And Ivy, our six-year-old, we call her a tempest in a teacup. She was sitting in the middle of the car between her two twin brothers, and she was uh, going to describe to her parents what she just learned. And she was going through, this is love, joy, peace. And as she got to patience, she lost it because these twin brothers were talking over her and she went ballistic. And Terry and I just laughed because here's someone trying to describe the fruits of the Spirit that they are so excited about and that they've just prayed for more of in their life. And what does God do? He tests her patience. He puts her in a situation where it's hard to be patient because how do you grow in the fruits of the Spirit? By being in places where it's difficult to have the fruits of the Spirit. It's like resistance training for a muscle. Love. How do we grow in love when it's hard to love? How do we grow in joy? Not by just being in a party all the time, by being in places where it's unnatural to have joy, and yet we find joy in God. How do we grow in patience? By being surrounded by twin brothers that are talking over us. How do we grow in peace? Not by living in a Zen garden and doing yoga all day, but by being in a chaotic world and finding a peace that passes understanding. That was Joseph's experience. He was forged through the fire of trial. And the Christ-like character that we need is not forged through a pain-free life. It's forged through trials. All of the trials that Joseph experienced were deeply meaningful because they prepared him for the ultimate role he would have of saving an entire nation. And as I've said before, these tough times, they made him more forgiving, they made him humble, and they killed a deadly independence on Joseph, and they replaced it with a beautiful reliance on God. 
and where I get this from is we see him as a young boy boasting to his older brothers about how great he's going to be one day. And then we see just a verse after that other verse I quoted about him quickly being removed from the dungeon. He gets placed before Pharaoh, the king of a whole empire. Now Joseph has been a slave. He's been mistreated. He's been in a dark, dank dungeon. And this is his moment to shine and impress. Surely, if you were ever going to put your foot forward and try and uh, impress people, this is your moment. And Pharaoh asks him if he can interpret his dream. And this is the first thing Joseph says, I cannot do it, Pharaoh, but God will give you the answers you desire. Wow, isn't that incredible? I think it reveals something that happened to Joseph through those trials and in that dungeon. He deflects the glory from himself and he gives it all to God. Whatever happened through those trials of Joseph made him a better, humbler, wiser man and God honored him for it. God did not create Joseph's hardships. Nowhere in the story do we see God plotting with the older brothers or Potiphar's wife to throw him in the dungeon, but God used the worst things that were thrown at Joseph for ultimate good. P.J. Smythe is a friend and a leader of a church in America, and a few years back, he got the devastating news that he had cancer. And I remember him sending an email to a bunch of friends telling us about this news. And he quoted Charles Spurgeon in it. Oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and God alone. Life's trials can sometimes be our biggest blessings if they shipwreck us and leave us beached on the mercy of God, acutely aware of our need for him. Corrie ten Boom was a famous Holocaust survivor, and she said this, You don't know God is all you need, until he's all you have. I think of my own life and how a particularly hard, heartbreaking season last year left me awake in the middle of the night, tossing and turning. I got up because I just literally had a physical ache in my heart. I couldn't sleep. And I, I wrote a kind of prayer poem for my kids. And I'd like to share it with you today. It's a mom's heart of... Um, sharing some of my heartache um, and the lessons I've learned through it for my kids. Um, and it's my prayer that you would feel God's heart for you um, as I read it over you. It's called The Uninvited Guests. Dear doted on and beloved, dear longings and dreams made powder soft flesh, dear sweet children born of my stretched heart, body, and white-knuckled prayers, your lives lie before you like a long banquet table. I hope you feast on its bounty and know that there's plenty to go around. I pray that you leave a seat for joy, peace, grace, truth, and love, and that they all show up and stay. I pray that fortune and fun, fulfillment and adventure pay many visits. But, oh, dear ones, sweet children with thin skins still on the soles of your feet, and on your souls too, there are two other guests who arrive, and they always, always arrive, unannounced and uninvited. Their names are hardship and heartache. I pray that they knock gently and don't stay long. But when they come to dine with you, be 
a gracious host. Serve them just as well as you do the other guests. While they're with you, you'll be tempted to order a side of blame and vindication. But don't. There are so many choices at life's buffet, but these guests' presence at your table will leave you bitter or better. Never both. You can pick only one. Choose the latter. Choose to look them in the eye. Lean in to see the gold they carry with them. It's yours to keep if you find it. Don't flinch from their touch. They mean to not break you, but to make you more humble, compassionate, human. If others brought these guests to you, raise a toast to them for bringing life's greatest teachers to your table, and then let them go. And kiss these two as they leave, too. For when they leave, and they always, always do, you will find that the old you leaves with them. No longer so thin-skinned, you will be beautifully battle-worn, with a heart that is no longer whole nor broken, but cracked open like a seed. And I was planning on uh, sharing this prayer with you, this kind of mother poem to my kids, um, and I wasn't sure if I should. And then my son, Charlie, my four-year-old boy, while we were waiting in the park for the holiday club to finish um, on one of the days, brought me this seed plucked from this park next door under one of the flame trees outside. And um, I just thought that's exactly what I saw when I wrote it. A heart that's no longer broken or whole, but cracked open like a seed. And so friends, my prayer for you is that you would let tough times go to work in you and make you better, not bitter, as they did with Joseph. And my third and final point I want to make is this. Pain and suffering will not last forever. This is really good news, isn't it? That come what may, whatever may come in this life, pain and suffering and evil will not last forever. You see, for the moment, God allows evil and suffering because if he were to eradicate it entirely, he would have to eradicate all of us too. Because which one of us has not inflicted pain in our lives? Make no mistake, though, no one will get away with anything ultimately. There is a day coming when God will put an end to all evil and all pain and all suffering. And on that day, either we will answer for our wrongs or we'll take shelter in a savior, a willing tribute who takes the punishment we deserve. Today we've looked at Joseph as a kind of savior that he was to the people of his day, but I want to end by looking at the true and better Joseph, the true and better savior Jesus, a man that, like Joseph, was betrayed by those as close to him as brothers, denied three times by his best friend, and instead of his father being unaware as Jacob was, Jesus' father looked on, aware with his full knowledge. Jesus was falsely accused like Joseph, and instead of being thrown in a prison, his punishment was a painful crucifixion. 
Jesus went into the pit of death, and he was hidden not in a dungeon, but a tomb. Like Joseph, Jesus went through all this so that multitudes would be saved, even those who spat at him close and those far away, separated by centuries like us. Just like Joseph, Jesus looks at those who hurt him, and instead of bitter vindication, he says, while hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Joseph, unlike Joseph, who didn't have a choice, Jesus willingly chose this road of suffering. Not because he's some kind of masochist, but because he wanted to shield every one of us in this room today from the greatest pain and suffering of being divorced from him and his life. Jesus didn't have the robe of many colors like Joseph, but he wore a robe of righteousness. And we told in the scriptures that he lived a perfect, spotless, unblemished life. This robe was spotless. And unlike Joseph, it wasn't torn off him. He places it freely on us. And this picture reminds me of um, the prodigal son coming home, which is a parable that Jesus tells. From a long way off, the father sees this prodigal son coming home. And he'd been living in a pigsty, literally, eating pig food. Can you imagine what he looked like and how he felt and what he smelt like? And this dad runs out to meet him. And without giving it a second thought, he throws his robe over this boy. And it covers him, covers all the mess that he is, and it fits him. And the same happens tonight with every single person that puts their faith in Jesus. He throws his robe of righteousness over them. This is good, good news for us, friends. It's especially good news if you're here tonight and you are far away from God. Perhaps you've rejected God because of tough times. What a relief to discover then, like Joseph's brothers did, that the good news is far more powerful than the bad. That instead of dishing out punishment and vindication on you, your Savior meets your angry blows with a kiss of love. His grace is like the jasmine vine that bathes the axe that slays it in its sweet fragrance. That's grace, and it's yours for the taking if you choose it. This is good, good news. I wonder if the band can come up while we close. Here is a God that feels pain, that doesn't just feel pain, but honors it. And I think sometimes, um, especially within Christian circles and within life and social media circles these days, we can hide our scars and our pain and just show these perfect facades. And yet the Christ we meet in the Bible and the kind of Christians we see in the New Testament on people that went, no, everything's fine. They showed their scars, they showed their thorns, and they said, I'm not fine, but God is all sufficient, and he is great, and he has freed me from the dungeon of trying to save myself, of shame, of guilt, and of an eternity separated from him. And... Um, I think that there's a powerful moment for each one of us in this room, for those that are far from God, 
to come home. But for if you are a Christ follower and you are feeling heartbroken or that you're facing a particularly hard time in life, there's no shame in saying, I'm going through a hard time. Paul did it. Jesus did it. And there's freedom there. Um, so I would love for us to pray for those sets of people. Perhaps we can pray first for those that are far from God. Perhaps we can close our eyes. If you are here tonight and you don't know Christ, can you see how it's not a coincidence that you're here tonight? Look at Joseph's life. There were so many random things that happened. The group of Ishmaelites he was sold to, the direction they were going into, the people he was imprisoned with. And he was there for such a time as that. And you are here for such a time as this. It's no coincidence that you're here. You're hearing a message about pain and you're hearing a message about a dad that loves you and wants to throw his arms around you. And so I want to give you an opportunity to respond. If you are not a Christ follower and today you want to say, I want to come home. I'm not going to call you to the front, but I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Would you just raise your hands now? Is there anybody that's in that place? Just raise your hand so I can see. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, great. Then I'm going to move on to the second bunch of people. And um, during worship, I felt like there was a certain dungeon that we find ourselves in that isn't circumstantial like Joseph's. It's a dungeon that we are free to walk out any time with God's help. And I felt like it was the pit, the dungeon of victimhood and unforgiveness. Friends, these are not things as Christ followers that you have to live under. There's some hardships that we all are going to have to endure. But these two ones, you don't have to endure a minute longer. I really do feel that there's people here tonight that God wants to free from feeling like a victim of your circumstances. Where you have lived in these grave clothes of being a victim. God wants to free you and see you walk away from those chains tonight. And similarly, I feel like there's people that have been holding on to unforgiveness. And I can't imagine what you've been through that you feel is so important that you need to hold on to that's not um, small enough for you to feel like you can leave at the cross for God to deal with. But I feel God's deep compassion for you and Him saying, leave it with me. The truest thing about you is not what has happened to you and the pain that has been inflicted on you. It is that you are a child of me. You are beloved and you are shaded by my great love and by my cross. So... um. Perhaps we can all stand and we can uh, end with a song. But before we do that, um, if that's you, would you raise your hand tonight? Thank you for your courage. 
I just want to pray for you. God, you are in this room and you are here to set captives free. I pray that right now, Lord, there would be grave clothes that would fall off these precious men and women. That, God, it would be as easy as shrugging off a dressing gown. It wouldn't be through their might or their power or their positive thinking. It would be a supernatural move of your Holy Spirit right now. That these lies and these chains that they have been living under would fall away in Jesus' name. That they would experience a freedom and a liberation that they have not known until this point. We pray for joy and for peace and for freedom for every believer in you, God, that we would leave nailed to that cross our sin and the sins that have been inflicted on us so that we would walk away free, free to love you and free to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing one song and declare God's goodness over all of our lives, no matter the circumstances.